Father, we ask that you would be so kind to us today to give us very attentive hearts and minds so that your word would bring life where there has been a bit of decay in our hearts. We ask that the name of Christ would be glorified in this gathering, cause a reverence to fall upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 21. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 21. This is God's word. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Uh, To set the scene, and particularly for those who are jumping into Daniel Um, a bit abruptly without uh, what we went over last week. Daniel and his three friends uh, have been taken captive. Their lives have been effectively just uprooted and they are held prisoner in Babylon. Uh, Their city is in the process of being destroyed. But the interesting thing is that these four young men who are teenagers likely at this time are given this opportunity to lead a somewhat peaceful life. In Babylon, but the peaceful life that they have the opportunity to live is really dependent upon them entering into this re education process. So they are being brought into this indoctrination process where they are supposed to lose their Jewish identity and live as Babylonian people. They're to learn the language and lifestyle of Babylon. Their names are changed to reflect the Babylonian gods. They're given the same food set before them 
that the Babylonian leaders are to eat. So they're literally supposed to eat, think, and breathe Babylon so that they would forget the God of Israel and pledge their allegiance to Babylon. And these young men, these teenagers, have to work out how they are going to stay faithful to their God amidst a culture that could really care less about their God, that could really care less about the God of Israel, and yet they are here serving this foreign people who are in the process of destroying their city, and they've got to try and navigate how to stay faithful. Now, this is a very timely theme and passage for us in this modern day, given that we have to constantly examine our lives and how we are to stay faithful to our God in a culture that is increasingly less sympathetic to Christianity and biblical morals, and we have to work out how we can be faithful to our God in every way of our life. And something that we should recognize very early on in this passage, and it, um, we, we alluded to this last week when we went over it, something that we should see very clearly when we think about the theme of how to stay faithful to God in such a time as this is that you cannot look to what everyone else is doing who professes to follow Jesus as a measurement of whether you are faithful or not. We can't live in a world of comparison and look to other churches or look to other people who profess to follow Jesus and say, well, my life looks pretty much the same as theirs. I must be doing okay. Notice uh, the context here for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. They are for among likely many other Jewish, possibly people from other nations, but certainly some other Jewish boys who have been brought into this re-education process. Uh, We know this because in verse 6 of chapter 1, we read, among these, that is all of those who have been brought into this re-education process where they're supposed to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans and serve the government, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So among all of those who have been taken captive, there is a faithful remnant who will not defile themselves. And rather than looking to other people, rather than these four young men looking to all of the other Jewish boys and saying, hey, they're uh, eating the Babylonian food as well and they're serving them, let's just hunker down and follow what they're doing and God will understand, right? No, they, they remain faithful to what the word of God, to the, to the scriptures that they hold so dear, regardless of the consequences. And this should be a confronting reminder for us in this world where the distinctiveness of the Christian church is becoming almost entirely corroded so that it is very difficult to determine whether someone is faithful or not, given that the lives of many people look just the same as everyone else. I've shared this um, with a few of you. Uh, I'm in a role now where I'm dealing with a lot of teenagers who uh, all uh, almost entirely profess to be Christian. And what's really difficult for me and grieving for my heart as someone who didn't grow up in a, a Christian environment, I didn't really come across any form of Christianity until I was 22. And what's really grieving is seeing all of these 14, 15 year olds whose lives look basically the same as mine. And I lived in a society where I didn't care about a God. 
And yet here are people who are professing to follow Jesus and don't realize that their lives don't show any fruit. There's no fragrance of Christ in them. And what tends to happen is that all of these people just look to the other people in their youth group and in their church and say, well, my life looks pretty much the same as theirs. You know, I've put my hand up. I've professed to be a Christian. And we, of course, can't do that. We don't look to other people. We look to Scripture as our guide. And Scripture leaves a pretty high bar for what it means to follow Jesus. And we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to sustain us as he completes his work within us. So as we think about this, this theme, and as we look at the story in chapter 1, we see these faithful young men who don't compare themselves to others, uh, but rather compare themselves to the God of Scripture and stay faithful to their God. And these events of these young men, they fall under the dominant theme of Daniel, which is what we will see time and time again, this dominant theme throughout the book of Daniel that is awfully encouraging for us, which is that of a sovereign God who is totally sovereign, who raises up kings and casts them off, very similar to what we were talking about this morning, who can make uh, the enemies of his own people actually look with favor upon them so that they prosper in some way, who can use the destruction of his own city and his own people in order to refine a faithful remnant and be glorified in them. This is the overarching theme of Daniel, that of a sovereign God who has not lost control but has totally ordained the exile of his own people. And in the midst of this, there is this faithful remnant that resolves not to defile themselves. So in this story of the rest of chapter 1 of Daniel, we see three main scenes. If you think about it as an episode, there are three main scenes in this episode. The first is the resolve, the second is the request, and the third is the result. The resolve, the request, and the result. We're going to spend most of our time on the resolve. So when I spend... Uh, the bulk of it, and then I say we're moving on to our second point, and you think this is going to go for ages, just be rest assured the bulk of it is going to be spent on the resolve, and then we will look at the request and the results. So let's look at this first scene of the resolve, which is really just here in verse 8. During this indoctrination process where Daniel and his friends are plunged into Babylonian life, there comes this point where Daniel is not willing to conform. He's not willing to assimilate to the Babylonian way of life. So we read in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now this is really interesting because Daniel at this point and his friends, uh, Daniel has accepted the fact that he will serve in the Babylonian palace. Like he's accepted the fact, and we will see the story play out in Daniel, that he will serve the king of Babylon. And then the king of Medo-Persia, he's accepted that he will learn the language and the way of life of Babylon. He has even accepted his name to be changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar, which refers to Bel, which is one of the Babylonian gods. He's allowed this much to happen, but yet there comes a point where he is confronted with eating the food and drink of the king, and he says, no way. This is too far. This is where I'm resolving not to defile myself. 
Now, why? Why does Daniel specifically draw the line with the food and drink? There are a number of theories as to why Daniel draws the line here. The first and most obvious is perhaps that the food of Babylon was not considered clean by Jewish standards. The Jews obviously had a very comprehensive law of what is clean and unclean, and the Babylonian food would not have been considered clean by Jewish standards. The only issue with that theory being the the sole reason that Daniel resolves not to defile himself is there is nothing particularly restrictive about wine amongst Jews, unless you are a priest or you are taking a a Nazarite vow, uh, which doesn't appear to be the case for Daniel. There's nothing particularly restrictive about wine, and yet that's included in what Daniel does not want to defile himself with. So perhaps another reason that people turn to is that the Babylonian food and drink would have been offered to idols. This was common practice in the ancient Near East, especially in Babylon, where the food would be offered up to the gods. And we actually see this happening in Daniel chapter 5, uh, where we get this insight into a, a feast. And what do we read happening as they, um, in Daniel 5, 3, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple. Um, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. I'm sure there were more gods that they were praising. This was just common practice for everything that was brought before you to lift it up to the gods, which is idolatry. And perhaps Daniel did not want to partake in that. Um, Part of an issue that's maybe not an issue, but it just raises some questions is that Daniel ends up receiving the vegetables. And it's not like he was sourcing the vegetables a thousand kilometers away from Israel. They were Babylonian vegetables that he eats that could have likely been offered to idols as well. Some people say maybe Daniel was just making a political stance. Given that he was now in the government, maybe he was taking this as a moment to pledge his allegiance to Yahweh and not to Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian gods. Now, I believe all of these theories could have in some way played a part in Daniel resolving not to defile himself. But what I believe is happening here is something much deeper than anything external. Something much deeper than simply unclean food or some political stance that he's taken. This is actually a deep internal heart issue for Daniel. Daniel's pure heart that is for God, convicts him of the immorality that is represented by the food and drink. And it could have been anything, but it was really the fact that this was representative of an immorality that Daniel just felt totally convicted of in his heart that he could not partake in. For Daniel, this would have been a participation in the immorality of idolatry, and that was simply too much for him. And I think we can see uh, very clearly why this is a heart issue because of the use of the words in this passage. So the the word used for defile, when we read in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the food or drink. This is a less commonly used word for defile. The most common word used for defile in the Old Testament, which is used hundreds of times, which usually refers to uh, whether something is clean or unclean, uh, is 
um, is not the word used here. So the, the common word through the Old Testament that's used for defilement or unclean is a word that describes things like if someone touched a dead body, they would be considered unclean or they would be considered defiled. Now, another example is in Leviticus 11. Don't bother turning there, but in Leviticus 11, uh, Yahweh is actually speaking to the people and he is saying, um, if, if any of you eat any swarming thing along the ground, then that is detestable and you will be defiled. And that's the, that's the word that is often used throughout the Old Testament. It's usually to do with something external and that makes you defiled or unclean and you have to go through a ceremonial process to become clean again. That's not what's happening here. The type of defilement that Daniel is talking about is a different word that's used less than a dozen times throughout the Old Testament. And this type of defilement refers to a deep-seated immorality in the heart. To give a few examples of this, it's used in Isaiah 59.3, where Isaiah 59 comes on the back of Isaiah 58, which is where God is rebuking his people for oppression and injustice. They are living in ways that are not reflecting his heart and concern for the most vulnerable within his covenant community. And then he goes on to say through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59.3, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, for your hands are defiled with blood. Now that's, of course, metaphorical. He's not saying that they've literally touched blood and would be considered unclean. He's saying your heart is so defiled, your hands are defiled with blood because there's a deep heart issue within you. You have hearts of stone. You're not reflecting my care and compassion for my own people in my covenant community. It highlights an internal defilement of the heart. To give just one more example of this, in Malachi chapter 1, God again is speaking to his own people uh, for their lack of concern and lack of fear before him. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says, Where is your fear before me? You despise my name. He says, You have no fear before me. And the people say, Oh, how have we despised your name? What have we done? And God says, By offering polluted food upon my altar. Now that word for polluted is the word for defiled that Daniel uses here. And how have they offered defiled food upon the altar? Well, God says, you offer blind and lame animals as a sacrifice. And that is detestable to me. You're offering blind and lame animals. Don't cost you anything. No one wants a blind animal. No one wants a lame animal. And yet they are offering this to God as though it's worthy of an offering, as though he would be pleased by their offering. This is not primarily describing their disobedience to the Mosaic law, though that was the case. But what God is getting at by saying, you offer defiled food upon my altar, he's saying, your offering of a lame or blind animal is representative of a wicked heart within you. A heart that's trying to offer this cheap thing and disguise it as though it's worthy of something. Now, there's a whole other sermon in that for how what we offer to the Lord and whether it is costly or whether we are offering things that don't cost anything and assuming that they will be worthy to the Lord. But that's probably another time. The point here is this defilement that God is referring to here is a defiling disease within their heart. It's a wicked heart 
that is evident by the way they go about their life. So they are defiled. Now, that's what Daniel is resolving not to do. He is resolving not to defile himself in this way, which is to say he has a pure heart that does not want to attach itself to any form of immorality. This is all about protecting a pure heart from being corrupted. See, we lose it if we're thinking about something external that's going to make him unclean. We have to reverse it. It's all about a pure heart that doesn't want to make itself attached to something that's unclean. This is what's happening here. Daniel has a transformed heart within him that does not want to be corrupted. A a heart that is for the Lord doesn't want to attach itself to any form of immorality. See, Daniel doesn't assume that eating or not eating the food will either make him clean or unclean. It wasn't the abstaining from food that made Daniel's heart pure. It was the fact that he had a pure heart that didn't want to attach itself to the immorality and defilement represented by this. Whether Daniel felt that the food or drink would threaten his allegiance to Yahweh or whether it was because of the immorality and idolatry often associated with the feasting of Babylon, it was a conscious decision from Daniel not to attach himself to this kind of immorality since his heart belonged completely to God. See, Daniel is walking consistently to what Jesus would go on to say to the Pharisees hundreds of years later in the passage that we read out, that Scott read out earlier, that defilement doesn't actually have anything to do with something external going into you. Rather, the defilement is about things coming out of you because what comes out of you proceeds from the heart. So what comes out of you will represent, be symbolic, whether you have a pure or impure heart. It's all to do with the internal. So if defilement is a heart issue, then surely the point is to protect our heart. And that is what Daniel is doing here. He is heeding the words of Proverbs 4.23, which tells us, guard your heart with all vigilance. Guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. So Daniel guards his heart with tremendous vigilance. I mean, amidst the cost of what would happen if they found out that he was rejecting the king's food. He guards his heart with all vigilance. And this is way more than simply moralism or legalism, which are terms that get thrown around when people start hearing about either abstaining from certain things or do's and don'ts of the Christian walk. And sometimes that can stray into moralism and legalism. But it is not moralism. What Daniel is doing and what we should do in resolving not to defile ourselves and actually setting up barriers and boundaries so as not to defile ourselves is not moralism where the desire comes because God has so gripped your heart, because the grace of God has so ravished your heart that there is a desire to keep this intimacy with him that will involve either doing or not doing things. The Bible is full of do's and don'ts. 
There are do's and don'ts to the Christian walk. But the thing that keeps it from moralism and legalism is that it always comes down to a desire to protect this intimacy, this communion that we have with the Lord. And so we seek to live lives that will resolve to not do certain things or to do certain things in order to keep this beautiful intimacy that we have with the Lord. So where your heart has been ravished by the grace of God, your resolve to either not do or do certain things is less about do's and don'ts. That's not the focus. It's more about what glorifies the Lord and what doesn't and more about what keeps a beautiful intimacy with him and what hinders or halts that intimacy. And that's what keeps this from moralism. And we see this buried in what lies underneath Daniel's resolve. So where it says Daniel resolved in the English word for resolve, I don't think it, I don't think we get the weight of it. We don't really use the word too much, but I, I think it sounds like a too soft of a word, but actually lying behind this is a Hebrew idiom that was common uh, language, sort of a colloquial term, if you will, where it literally says, Daniel set on his heart, which means he placed something, he established something on his heart. And the heart in Hebrew thinking is the place of will and thought. It's more like our minds. So Daniel set on his heart. He established firmly in his heart. And this demonstrates that this has penetrated to the depths of his heart. It's way more than moralism or legalism. That's, that never penetrates anything. That just reduces life to a list of do's and don'ts. That has nothing to do with a changed heart. It's actually more to do with keeping God at bay because if your life reflects some do's and don'ts, then he can't ask too much of you because you're doing certain things for him. That's not what's happening here and that's not what should happen for us. Establishing firmly in our hearts to put away sin and to put on righteousness is hardly legalistic when it comes from a desire to protect an intimate level of communion with our Savior. The kind of desire that Paul had where he said, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave lest I be disqualified. The kind of intimacy which he talked about where he said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings and that required a tremendous level of discipline. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I strike a blow to my body, that's a word that literally means I give myself a black eye. That's how serious I am about walking with the Lord. And that comes from a heart that has been absolutely ravished by the Lord. Let me give you just an example of how this might play out in life. This has never actually happened to me. Hopefully it uh, never does, but it's um, an example that I think hopefully demonstrates the difference here between perhaps a moralistic way of approaching this and the right way of approaching this. Let's say a woman whom I knew from the past is uh, in town in Canberra for one night and she asks me if I would consider spending the night with her in her hotel. Uh, and nothing sus, but just because she's a little bit lonely and would like some company. Now, there are two ways that I can go about reaching the right conclusion of, of course, not doing that. There are two ways that I could go about that. I could firstly either weigh up the pros and cons of it biblically and look at some passage and think, hmm, what, would, what does the um, word of God say about this? 
And then I could make a chart, like one of those charts that says, if, if this, then move here, and if that, move there, and eventually it'll get me down to the bottom, which will say either a yes or a no. And then eventually after weighing up that, I could say, out of duty to my wife, I'm not going to do it. Now, that's, number one, a terrible way to go about every moral dilemma in your life. It's absolutely exhausting. But I think, most of all, number two, it reflects incredibly poorly upon my wife. It shows there is no affection within my heart for her. I mean, I've arrived at the right conclusion of not doing it, but it's just this abstract external list of do's and don'ts, and then out of duty, I reach that conclusion. See, what should happen is that because of the deep, intimate covenant love I have for my wife, there is a natural pull toward her whenever immorality creeps the door. There's a natural pull toward her. And the desire is for my covenant wife. The desire is to keep intimacy with my covenant wife. So there is this natural heart pull away from that. The very thought of it actually brings a level of disgust to do that, even if nothing happened, it just ruins the intimacy. It destroys it. And that's coming from my heart. I don't have to form a chart to know it's not a difficult decision for me to make if that were to happen. So there are two approaches that end in the exact same outcome of making the right decision of not doing it, yet they are vastly different in their approach. One approach reduces life down to a list of do's and don'ts and then simply responds out of duty and it reflects terribly upon the covenant partner. And the other approach responds to all things from within the covenant love that already exists and it is a desire to protect that covenant love. It's a pull toward that. Daniel's resolve comes from an intimacy with his God that he desires to keep. That's where it's coming from. His defiance wasn't simply because God had told him not to eat or drink particular things. It was because his heart had been gripped by the God of heaven and earth. And we will see that play out through the book of Daniel. And he desires to keep a bond of communion with him. So whenever immorality creeps the door, there is this pull back to his covenant partner, which will result in Moments of strong resolve not to do certain things. Now, the next scene is the request. So that's the resolve. Now we come to the request, which is from verses 9 to about 13, 14. So now that Daniel has resolved in his heart not to defile himself, he has to go about doing this the right way. Daniel makes a request to the leadership, and notice that he doesn't make a big song and dance about it. Daniel doesn't say, you know what, I'm sick of this. Take me to the king. Not going to eat the food and drink. He doesn't try and wear some false martyr badge and say, you know what, just kill me. I'd rather die than eat the food. He actually employs a tremendous level of God-given wisdom through this process. He has a word to the lead servant, which is the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief eunuch gives this response that we see in verse 10, which is totally understandable, where the chief eunuch, basically paraphrasing, he he says, look, my hands are tied. I'd, you know, sure, I'd love to help you, but it's my head. So I'm not going to do it. 
So you better just follow the instructions or both of us are going to get in trouble. And then Daniel, very wisely, after realizing that the chief eunuch will not allow him to do it, he goes to the next rung down, which is a steward who is then in charge of the four young men. So you had the chief eunuch overall, and then there would have been stewards over all of the other men. And Daniel goes to his steward and he offers a compromise. And he says, hey, test us. Test us and see what will happen after we eat vegetables for just 10 days. See how we will look. 10 days would have been enough time to see a slight difference, but not so much time that it would raise suspicion. And through the whole process, and notice this because this is the thread all throughout Daniel, we clearly see God's sovereign grace in gifting favor and compassion for Daniel to those around him. Look at verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. As Daniel goes about this request, There is a sovereign God who is actually causing people to look favorably upon him in order to achieve his purposes. There is a God-given attractiveness that Daniel has that makes these Babylonian leaders sympathetic to his requests. And now we have the result of the request, which is from verse 15. We read at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and Fatter in flesh, which is a desirable thing back then, not so desirable now, but that's certainly a a way of saying these men look good. They look really healthy. After only 10 days, I mean, this has to be clearly God-ordained. After 10 days of eating vegetables, and they look extremely healthy in their appearance. This is the Lord's faithfulness toward his faithful Remnant. See, the point of this is, of course, not how much better eating vegetables are than the Babylonian food. It's not even about how wise Daniel was to go about with this compromise. Rather, the point of this, and what we see from the result, the point is God's faithfulness toward his people when his people walk in faithfulness toward him, regardless of the cost involved. This is about God's faithfulness toward his people achieving his purpose, that is glorifying himself through his faithful servants. The result for Daniel and his friends is really the result of firm faith in God when it seems counterintuitive. Like, think about this scenario. It would have been so much easier for Daniel to just follow everyone else and just fly under the radar. Just serve the Babylonians. You know, around about this time, they're about to get the letter from Jeremiah, which tells them to settle in, you know, marry within your community, um, build houses like you're here, serve the Babylonian people, seek their welfare, for in its welfare, yours will be there also. It would have been easy for Daniel to just say, you know what, I feel like God's given us an okay for this. Let's just kind of, um, you know, worship Yahweh in our hearts, but we'll offer Uh, the worship to the Babylonians, and God will understand. Or think about Daniel and his friends at any point in these 10 days, with this deal they had made with the steward, at any point in these 10 days, the Babylonians could have found out that they were rejecting the king's food and would have been off with their heads. That would have been it. Or maybe by the end of it, 
I mean, it seems like to us, I wouldn't think eating vegetables for 10 days is going to make you look a whole lot better. Maybe at the end of 10 days, they would have looked worse and it would have been found out. I mean, they had to have an almost counterintuitive level of trust in the Lord that he was going to achieve his purposes through them, that he would honor their resolve for faithfulness, to be faithful. So in the face of great cost, they had to trust the Lord to honor their faithfulness. And the 10 days here, this event of the 10 days becomes used elsewhere in Scripture as a symbol of God's call for faithfulness amidst severe testing. So don't worry about turning there, but in the letters to the churches in Revelation, in uh, the letter to the church of Smyrna, which is one of the two faithful churches in Revelation, Jesus writes to the church of Smyrna and he says to them, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So listen to what Jesus is saying. In the face of great persecution, in the face of growing Roman persecution and whatever else is happening, all of the temptation to succumb to the idolatry of that world for the church of Smyrna, Jesus encourages them to endure the 10 days of testing. Now, the 10 days, 10 as a number, is obviously used a lot throughout Scripture, but 10 days of testing isn't all that common. It's usually 40 days for the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the 40 days of testing. But yet here Jesus says, endure the 10 days of testing and you will receive the victor's crown. Why does Jesus specifically say 10 days? It could be that there was a literal 10 days that they were going to go through. It could also be that this is an allusion for the church of Smyrna back to this event that they would have known about, a very prominent event in the history of Israel, these 10 days of testing where Daniel and his friends succeed and God honors their faithfulness. It's supposed to remind these persecuted Christians in Smyrna that just as God was faithful to his faithful remnant all the way back then, he will be faithful to you in the midst of your severe trial. He will be faithful to you. So endure in the face of even death. Endure. So this event is highly significant for God's people when their faith is tested. And the point for us, of course, isn't just to go out and do crazy, irresponsible things under the banner of faith, nor is the point that we must have big faith like Daniel. We don't put ourselves in those shoes. The point, rather, for us is to see the faithfulness of our sovereign God, see how he faithfully preserves his people, see how he faithfully honors them, how he opens doors for them. We need to see the faithfulness of our sovereign God. And we trust with trust as small as a mustard seed. So long as it is in Christ, we trust that what he calls us to is right and good, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what it may cost. We honor the Lord and we trust that whatever he ordains will be good and right. So I want to finish with one very quick application for us. At several hours, but for the sake of time, one very quick application. Guard your heart to seek greater intimacy with Christ. 
Guard your heart. Daniel's resolve. Daniel establishes in his heart not to defile himself. Following the pattern of Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all vigilance. As Calvin said, the heart is a factory of idols, an idol-making factory. The heart that has been purified by Christ must be guarded. It must be kept. And the desire to guard it comes down to a desire to seek intimacy with our Lord, to, to, to want to know him. Don't expect to grow in intimacy if you are cavalier with your walk, if you are not guarding your heart from things that corrupt it, from distractions, conversations that we have with people that seem to always tend towards bitterness and envy, shows that we watch that leave us coveting a particular lifestyle or I think worse, that help us um, escape in our minds, that sort of lure us down a path of escapism. Guard your heart. Guard it with a healthy diet of the word and prayer and a fellowship and guard it by protecting what you allow in. We abstain from certain things in order to guard our hearts which is really to guard the deep intimacy with Christ. See that as the prominent point here. Under God's sovereignty, God's faithful remnant will guard their hearts with all vigilance. There's a high level of intentionality with that. They'll be careful about what they allow in, careful about keeping a regular routine of word and prayer because it is like oxygen to a scuba diver. They're not going to go anywhere without it. That is how we guard our hearts. Let me pray and then we will sing in response. Father, I pray that you would please help us to recognize things in our life which we ought to cast away, things in our life which we ought to make much more of a priority to do. And may it be because we have tasted and seen that you are good and we want more. We want to taste again. We want an intimacy. We, we believe that there is absolute satisfaction in Christ. There is a wonderful joy there is a hope that we long for in heaven, but yet which we get the foretaste of now and we want to just swim in the ocean of knowing Christ every day. And I, I pray that you would help us to take this very seriously. This is life or death to guard our hearts with all vigilance, to resolve not to defile ourselves and to do it because we seek to be faithful to you who have shown your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you have given us many, many reasons for why you are trustworthy, not least of all, you not withholding your own son, but freely giving him for us. And so we know you will freely give us all things. We rejoice in that. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.